Hello and welcome to Midpoint. My guest today is not what I'd call a traditional midpointer for the simple reason that he's still in his 30s. But as a retired international rugby player, James Haskell has already been through many of the things midlifers go through. Retirement, reinvention and sometimes a physical rebuild. James retired from professional sport in 2019 after accruing 77 caps for England. And as a sports person, his Marmite personality was as notorious as his back row skills. And it's that which has propelled him into the media spotlight post-retirement. He's now a successful podcaster. He's just released his sixth non-fiction book, Approach Without Caution. He's a professional DJ and he's even trying his hand at stand-up comedy, touring the nation with his show entitled Sex, Tries and Videotape. Because he's tried his hand at so many things, rather than hearing from an expert today, I'm putting your questions to James. And I'm really intrigued how all these different facets of his life fit with being a relatively new father. Perhaps DJing and stand-up set you up perfectly for night feeds. Let's find out. James Haskell, good to see you. Good to speak to you. How are you? Very well, thank you, Gabby. How are you? Very well indeed. Now, a lot of people might be thinking, hang on, James Haskell, you are technically on the cusp of midlife, but the reason you are, believe it or not, 38, (laughs) according to the Economic and Social Research Council. Um, But people keep asking for slightly younger sporty guests because I think there is, and they're right, these people, um, there's definitely kind of a midlife crisis that happens to sports people a lot younger because you're transitioning in terms of your career. There's a crisis of kind of confidence sometimes. It's a bit turbulent in your life. And and, and also, you're just a very interesting guy. So I'm kind of bending the rules to have you on today. But do you recognise that description? Of, sp- of sportsmen and women in terms of, you know, that kind of crisis that happened. I'm speechless, Gabby. I mean, now I've figured out what the hell midpoint meant. I just don't know what I, I just, I just, when Gabby, when Gabby Logan comes to ask you to do a, to a podcast, you're like, yes, no, no problem. Now I realise midpoint associated middle age. I should really read the brief. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, I do. I do recognise that wholeheartedly. Actually, you are you are correct. We're not correct about me approaching middle age. I'm nothing but a young buck, just on on you know, still on my way. Still, you know, still the future's bright. Um, yes, I think it's weird because they they say that sports people have two deaths. Really, you kind of have your first retirement, and then you have to have your second retirement. You know, and especially with the rugby. You know, I was thirty. 35 when I retired and you have to kind of especially if you're a bit institutionalized like I was you know I went to all boys boarding schools all the way through all boys in a rugby team and sort of my world view and my kind of upbringing was relatively narrow I didn't go to university so I didn't get that cosmopolitan experience and then you then have to find your way in the world and I have no no discernible skills you know I mean the only two qualifications I do have are a barista course which is useful and I can drive um a ten, any 10 ton and above 360 excavator on any building site in the UK. Basically, that's a backup plan because if I get cancelled, most building sites will take you unless you, you know you've done something. They're really not bothered wrong. about that. They're not bothered no, about what you said no. about any killed someone. Issues or... <laughs> yeah, killed someone. Not a problem. Political issues, not a problem. Um, <laughs> but otherwise, so that's so that's kind of all I've got to my, my my name really. So then, you also then have that point where. The rugby players they earn well, you know, in, in contextually. Um, you have a lifestyle, got to take, you know, responsibility for that. And I think it it is very hard to, to balance that. And you do get caught up in this sort of world where you can suddenly party for the first time. You can suddenly go out. You've got weekends. You can holiday. There's no there's no routine Boundaries. around you. Because, yeah, you're almost institutionalised, really, as you described, that boarding school experience as well. So somebody has always told you the parameters of your life. 
Yes, 100%. And then you've also had a reason, someone's particularly rugby, you have lots of checks and balances, you know, especially the teams that I, that I played with, you know, you, you had characters that it would call you on your on your nonsense. They would say to you, actually, listen, you know, you, you're, not, you're not pulling your weight. Coaches would push you. You then have your own individual sort of uh, discipline that made you successful. When you're taken out of that um, and into the real world and you haven't got a boss, you know, why do you get up? You know, who, who, who makes you responsible for what you're, for what you're doing? Um, and, and also those life decisions, you know, your routine and your structure and every bit of purpose you had is taken away. And I think purpose is probably the, the key word because if you watch humans without any purpose, you know, very rarely do they, they make something of themselves unless you're a very sort of hippie-ish kind of, you know, or, or a, a Shaolin monk up a mountain whose sort of purpose is, is greater than all, all of us can imagine. People become quite rudderless. You see it with kids all the time. You see it with most of society today. If without a purpose, you get lost and you sort of go down all these sort of rabbit holes. So for me, it was very important to find my purpose, find my direction, find my routine. And it took me a long time. You know, I'm, I'm retired four years and I've just about now got that balance right. Which seems to have coincided with becoming a father. But more on that in a moment. Uh, you were something, I think, when you retired of a whirling dervish, weren't you? You were kind of like, almost like spinning around, doing loads of stuff and seeing what, would stick. I mean, you see it with sportsmen all the time. And in a way, is that kind of avoiding what you perceive as normal life? Do you know what I mean? Of that kind of um, the rat race or getting into something which just feels a bit, and let's, let's face it, compared to being a professional sportsman, a bit mundane. Yes, yes. I mean, because they, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if we can swear, but I, I won't. But someone said basically, just play as long as you can because the real, real world's crap, is what they said, but in not quite so uh, polite terms. Um, <laughs> But I found out crap, people think crap's a swear word the other day. So I, I'm like, my vocabulary is awful. I was yeah. brought up with crap as a swear word, but oh, my fine. kids tell me that I'm being completely, they, they call me a, no, I'm joking. They, they, <laughs> <laughs> they, they said, that, that's ridiculous, yeah. that's not a swear word. But let's, let's leave swear words for another episode. Fine, fine. Yeah. So you have um, now, as you say, found some purpose and yes. found, I guess, a new why. Why yes. you get up in the morning? What you, you know, what is it then? Yeah, so, so my why now, let's go back a step right so so I was never that bothered about rugby I, wa I, I wanted to play rugby I was a fan but I, I didn't have that probably that diehard passion but but rugby became my vehicle to be successful because I was good at it and it gave me parameters and clear sort of tent poles in the ground of, of, of a metric to measure how successful you were right and then once I got into it my my sort of internal desire to consistently be better it, it was was there and it made it was a clear it gave part. self esteem as it well. gave me self esteem it gave me purpose it gave me um kind of identity but it, it was quite clear that if you in professional sport if you train hard you work hard you go do the extras and you perform it's quite a linear process when you get into the real world you know when I, the things i chose to do you know djing uh, podcasting um and there is actually a weird thing because when I, when i looked at all the stuff i did people kind of say the same thing you said lots of things all over the place, but it all comes down to performing and being a massive show off and an attention seeker. Basically, that's, that's what it is. If you look, look at it, so, you know, DJing's telling a story with music. Podcasting is a performance. Doing stand-up is a performance. Even the fighting was an opportunity to sort of relive some of the camaraderie and some of the, the, the turmoil that I had as a rugby player, but also was performing. But I was an individual sportsman for once. I'd never done that. So all those things that were attractive sort of came out. But now I think for me, um, all of it's kind of boiled down to, I don't feel like I work anymore. So I feel like all the stuff I do is very enjoyable. My why, you know, my why has just always been to be as successful as I possibly can and to 
to enjoy myself. And I think, you know, I've narrowed things down now to DJing is the, is the thing that I derive more passion from than anything else. I find it um, the most intoxicating. I find it the hardest thing to achieve. Being a Z-list celebrity, people don't necessarily want to, to sign you and play, but every time kind of they put an obstacle in front of me, it then makes my sort of rugby mentality kick in. I go, right, what have I got to do to, to achieve this? Um, who do I have to speak to? How, who, you know, who do I have to work with? What do I have to do? And so for me, that is very clear now that all the stuff I do is around that performance element. And I think um, I tried lots of things and probably got lost down a few rabbit holes. I also, I went to seven countries in sort of six months and, you know, was all over the place and wasn't making time for training, wasn't making time for, you know, wasn't managing my diary. So I got a PA. I, d I started to look at how my life was structured and what was important to me. And I still do too much now, um, but I thrive in chaos. You know, I don't sit very well doing nothing. I find that very hard um, like last night, I was left on my own for the first time with the baby. Chloe wasn't in the house. It's the first time Chloe hasn't been in the house because normally I'm out. So I sat there in the house and I was like, right, I'm going to um, I'll, I'll tidy some stuff up. Then I've got to look after the baby. Oh, I'll do some emails. Oh, I want to make some music. Oh, I know too. I'll get my Xbox out. Oh, I want to watch a movie. And honestly, I, for four hours, I did absolutely nothing apart from starting and finishing lots of little tasks. And that's kind of my, my ADHD kicking in. So I, I just can't sit and just reflect, you know. Is that something that, still you think you'd like to work on yes 100 percent. i mean I had, I had a conversation a guy um interviewed me yesterday because i was diagnosed with adhd when i when i was eight right and they put me on ritalin they did all this kind of um and i i, I don't think i was a particularly difficult child but i imagine i was very stressful for my parents and i, and I know they tried lots and lots of, of methodologies to get me to focus to get me to concentrate get me to stop being you know disruptive or whatever and so I took the medication, whatever, but in that process of until about 16, 17, I sort of learned through that how to sit down and, and focus. So I'm able to write books. I'm able to, to spend time focusing. And that's why I've got the energy to do all the different things I do. However, it can become your unraveling because you're not particularly satisfied a lot of the time. And I wasn't satisfied with my rugby career. And I always was focused on the next thing, which meant that I, you know, suddenly I was 17, then I was 35 and I was always on to the next thing. And I never sat down and went, well, that's good. So in retirement, one of the things I've changed is, you know, when I hear one of my records played on Kiss or Radio 1, I, I celebrate. I sit there and go, wow, this is, this is something to be proud of. You know, if a book becomes a bestseller, I'm like, this is amazing. But I still struggle now to sit and, to sit and kind of just switch off. Yeah. Does, does holding Bodie when she's falling asleep in your arms, does that not give you that kind of... Because I always remember when my, mine were little, that kind of stillness that a baby has, you know, when they're falling asleep is, is incredibly relaxing if you can kind of just be there in that moment. Yes. Yes. So, so I, I, cause I did, I, I've always done um, therapy. So I did it since I was 17, seeing a sports psychologist. And I, I saw something the other day as well. Like I kind of tried to be consistent with it because I obviously had a baby a change of career I'm, I'm always performing all over the place and so sort of I wanted to have a have a chat and one of the things we talked about was was mindfulness you know when people mm. talk about mindfulness they you imagine sort of emptying your mind and going um mm. but actually mindfulness is just sitting in the moment and reflecting so when I'm doing the night feeds with Bodhi like last night I'm just sitting there feeding her just looking at her and you sort of just relax and you're just thinking about her or you know you're playing with her on on the floor so you're you know you're, you're right it's kind of you do have those moments or if I sit outside and if I have a cigar and I have a coffee and I just sit and watch the world go by mm. those for me are those kind of yeah. mind, mindful moments but I do you, you are right I do definitely get them with um with Bodhi it's just things like like last night I had four hours and all I should have done was put on the tv and put my feet up and instead mm. I tried to reinvent the wheel and do a million different things 
I, I, I relate to that, though, because I can probably do like, you know, an episode. We watched the first episode of Ted Lasso, the third series last night, and that's enough. You know, I don't I don't need to watch seven episodes back to back or uh, that's I've relaxed. Oh, I've relaxed now. <laughs> I can move on. But um, but I think that is, you know, there are just personality types, aren't there? That just want to kind of keep doing lots of different things and trying different things. And maybe maybe it does come from that kind of sporting background. And we'll let's dive a little bit deeper into that in terms of what you when you were playing. And now there's a story you're going to tell me it's an urban myth. Kenny's told me that you'll re- you'll deny this. But when you turned up at Wasps as a young lad, you were still at school, weren't you, when you first yeah. uh, turned up at Wasps? You handed out business cards, jameshaskell.com. <laughs> yes. And your nickname became .com. So that, Im- that, that implies to me a certain entrepreneurship, a certain kind of re- a, a realisation that this was something you were going to get hold of and have, you know, you're going to make the most out of this experience. Yes. Yeah, so do you know what? There is 100% true, that story. But do you know where that came from? That came from my dad. And I'll be honest with you. So when I, when I look back at my career, I'm very envious of, of, of guys like, you know, you knew Tom Reese and, and I'd say, you know, like Chris Robshaw and my sort of contemporaries who are always you know, highly regarded, but, you know, never seen like I was seen, right, in terms of that. And, I, you know, I didn't have the best start, you know, getting suspended from school for being involved in an unfortunate video incident, then going straight into school. And my dad set up a set up a website without telling me and then obviously had these business cards without telling me because I would never do that. Generally, it's not in my character to do that. But I remember when, um, you know, and he was quite persuasive as to why he'd done it. And I remember telling him, like, I just don't want it. I don't want to do it. And I think half the reason my sort of career started as it did was because of things like that where, you know, I think, I think I don't know if I was handling around, I think my lads found them or saw them or saw something because my dad, so dad had given was them doing it from the best motivation. It, he was, he was, but it's just actually for, for someone who is obviously so self-promoting and, you know, and so kind of, um, you know, have that kind of like, look at me, I'm in the room. It actually, I think I've grown into that more. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes, without, without, you know, wanting to do that because I would never do that. Now, you'd, uh, you know, as a young player, I just laugh in their face. So I remember begging him, begging him, please don't build me a website. I don't want it. I don't want it. And then obviously, as soon as all the ads found out, it was awful. And I remember, you know, these business cards. I was like, Dad, you know, I played for England under 19, under 20s. He put the rose on there with a wasp. Like, I was like, Dad, have you lost your mind? Now, it, the, the honest answer was, is that he wanted to, it wasn't meant for the players. It was meant yeah. for, um, Commercial sponsors people. and brands. Yeah, sponsors to add some value. That can, you know, in all the noise of everybody, and most of them are quite amateur. I never forget Josh Lucy kind of giving me so much st- a stick for a website, and then everybody sort of started their own websites. And then Josh Lucy was the last one to get it, and I got I got sponsorship deals off the back of it, and it did make a difference. But it was just doesn't sit well with me, and I'm, and so it's very it's, it is all true. And you look back at it now, and you're like, what the hell? was going on and I think um, that forged a lot of my career you know where, do you know where what James if you think about the modern iteration of that is Instagram for players you know the players who've got big following on social media they're the ones that kind of have more brand relationships they might not be the very very best players but they you know I'm always amazed when somebody I perceive to be one of the greatest in their sport you know has like tens of thousands of, of followers and then somebody who's pretty average has got hundreds of thousands but they're the ones that the brands are associating with so actually you kind of were, were you know your dad was in the in the zeitgeist really yes. wasn't he he was he 100%. was a kind of head of the game he, look he was riding that wave of like what was what what was going on it's just like anything you know i remember when i was the first person on the wasp bus to wear headphones and listen to music because i'd worked with a psychologist that basically was trying to find a consistent way to approach every game using the power, uh, motive power of music now when i put headphones on it used to upset everybody right they could like so, so i had these big headphones and lads were like you're not concentrating you're not listening certain players like take them off 
you know, when we're in the change room, people are like, you're not listening to Lawrence. So I then used to take one earphone off and so they could see it. Then I switched to smaller earphones. Then I, I had tiny little inner ear bits. And then I, I used to have a notebook. The notebook with notes used to upset people. Then I used to put the notes on, a, on an iPod because I discovered you could put notes on an iPod. Then I would watch, um, I'd have a video of like, you know, highlight it. I just had to, and every time they were told not to do it, I'd go, yeah, I'm not going to do it. And I just change the rules because I was selfish. I was always going to do what I was going to do. But it used to upset people. Now you look at the change room, everybody's got headphones on. Everybody's watching highlight. Everyone's got their phone. And it's, so I was... I did understand that. It's just, I don't want to be a pioneer. I didn't want to be a yeah. pioneer. But it has, it, ultimately, I have got myself where, well, you know. It's a brutal environment, isn't it? If you're going yes. to stand out from the crowd, it's, you've got to be so confident and so sure of what you're doing in that rugby dressing room or any kind of team sport dressing room. But I did have those moments where I honestly questioned it a lot of the time, you know, with, with sort of, you know, the, 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 especially around the therapy stuff, of, you know. I was like, they just can't handle me listening to music. I was like, what's the problem? Or you know, making those notes, like, what are you looking, what are you thinking? It would just be things like, right, a couple of, couple of key points that I wanted to focus on in that game. Now, every, well, most people you think would take care of their sort of mental health and psychology. So it was frustrating. And, and look, I got nicknamed the brand as well, Ian McGeekin, who, who, I don't know what happened, something, something he told Stuart Barnes or somebody that I was more interested in brand deals than I was playing rugby because I didn't sign for WAS, so he got the arse a bit. But ultimately, when you look at kind of the, the CV and the things I've done and the places I've been, now... You know, I'm not going to say I had like last, the last laugh like Alan Partridge in his book, but I, I kind of worked out all right. But I would have just rather my, my personal, well, my personality is actually I'd rather just have a bit of smooth running. I don't always want to be the one that everyone's looking at because I kind of do that naturally by being me. I don't want to like be. I just wonder know, though, chicken and egg, which came first? Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. You say I do that naturally, but actually because it served you well and it's probably made you very robust and it's made you be able to handle some of the, the stuff that comes your way when things don't always come out right or think, you know, people have got different opinions. You know, you've ridden quite a few social media kind of furores, mm. haven't you? So, so actually, I think you're the product of your own um, I am now. And I am now looking at Look, I think, as I said, my dad pushed me one direction and then, and then you start, when people start having that reaction to you, you've got no choice. You can't put the cat back in the bag. So once it's out, and look, I... I you know, I have an opinion and the one thing is I'm not, you know, I'm not staunch necessarily in my opinion. It's what, well, something will come to me and I'll think about it. But I, I think the saving grace is you, you, you then reflect, you know, maybe I got this wrong, maybe I didn't get this right or I can learn. Um, and I have put my foot in it like any number of times. And I was always going to do that just because of the way I, the way I am. But I, I, I think my personal kind of preference is I don't have an opinion or try to be controversial for the sake of it. I'm not Katie Hopkins or Piers Morgan. I don't, I don't need to do that. I'd quite happily just rather get on and enjoy myself um but like you said my, my part my personality is to be a bit crass sometimes and to put my foot in it and i think you've just got to got to be aware of that and keep learning don't make the same mistake twice you know at least all, all the social media for always had to be for completely different completely different things <laughs> but the one underlying thing is just don't say on social media or ever respond to anyone that transition that sports people have because I think it's almost like having 20 years crammed into 10 or 12 you know in terms of what you're doing in your career and a lot of our midpointers might be wanting to pivot and do different things you know we're, we're all going to work for longer and actually if you enjoy your work as you clearly do it, that's not a problem but a lot of people don't enjoy their work you know and they want to change and do something in midlife when you're a professional sports person when you're playing rugby you kind of had a direction almost or you had some some way of knowing that it was performance you enjoyed in terms of everybody else, what, what do they do for you to kind of give you some guidance or did you never experience that? Do you know what, do you know what the, the secret to, uh, uh, this is what I think and, and, I've, and I've reflected again and the beauty of kind of 
doing therapy and and also learning the lessons through rugby, which was you you, you performed something, it was reviewed, you would learn from it, you would seek feedback and move on, which is a lesson in life that most people don't have. Most people live their lives with no self-reflection. They often surround themselves with people that are just going to tell them what they want to hear and they very rarely review. You know, you will probably look back at some stuff, maybe if you're not comfortable, people will give you feedback. You constantly evolve your performance where you are now you look back at when you started will mm-hmm. be i would say Ma- maybe particularly different, different yeah. massively different but but you know if you've got a hunger to be the, the best that you are you have to go back and look at it and so one of the things i i learned through this review process was if you have a, a job which most people have a job right they, they they put money on the table to feed their family uh, it's not a career a career is something that you're you doesn't feel like work most of the time uh, it's something you're going to stay with forever it's a real burning passion if people have a job and then they have their family, right, if either one of those is going wrong, they don't have anywhere to turn. So if your job's crap and your family's, you know, you're fighting with your partner, you sort of don't have an outlet. And one of the things I learned through through sports was if I just had rugby and I just had my private life, it's very difficult. So what I did was I tried to find avenues that were just mine, things that I owned wholeheartedly that come what may, I would be able to um, return to. And it, and it comes down to kind of what you can control and I think you know often with rugby I can only control my side of the fence how I trained how I slept how I performed um, but I can't control where the coaches like me or select me or the media relationships you can put your side of the story yes you can be better but you can't control your partner but whereas if you've got a hobby so like things like DJing or reading a book or or, or you know what technology whatever the stuff you're into walking you know whatever it might be you can own that wholeheartedly so when something goes wrong you have that to fall back on and I'd say one of the beauties of of where I ended up was I had no direction. If I hadn't played rugby, I had no idea. As I said, my rugby was a vehicle for me to excel. I, I, it wasn't something I wanted to do. I never wanted to be a rugby player. I just sort of fell into it. If I hadn't had that, I wondered just how, where I would have ended up because I would have been pretty, pretty rudderless, I think, because I just didn't have any burning passions. I was just a bit of a, you know, a meathead bloke, just, you know, Neanderthal, really. I, you know, I kind of didn't really know what I wanted to do. But all the hobbies that I had, I ended up monetizing. So I enjoyed writing. I enjoyed telling a story. I, you know, I uh, after doing speaking, you know, I wasn't shy to stand up in front of people. So then I made something out of that. DJing was a hobby, but then I saw an opportunity to to go, you know, to to make it into a passion and to take it forward. And I think a lot of people need to look at their lives and go right, like what is it they have that is just theirs? What is it they have that they can exert complete control over? You know, audio books, reading, painting, drawing. What do they control? And then, you know, sometimes you find that your your hobby could turn into a passion because most things can be monetized now. And I think if you keep that alongside your job and your and your life, there is a good way to kind of pivot off and, and divert. And more often than not, just taking a step to to make your, your hobby into something more, you can find a career, you can find a passion. And you see it all the time with people. You know, I was doing this for years, didn't really love it. I was running the side business and then I transitioned to it. So people at that midpoint in their life, I... I'd, I'd say, what is it you enjoy, you know, in, in a cold, dark day when things aren't going well, what do you have to turn to? And I think once you understand that, it will propel you forward in the right way. Yeah, that's that's very good advice. And it also, I think, will help people who, like Kenny and I, are looking at the potential empty nest syndrome. You know, we've got uh, Ruben be moving out in a couple of months' time and Lois is having a gap year, but she'll be gone uh, to uni after that. And I've noticed, and I, whether it's subliminal or not, I'm dressed today like this because I'm going to play golf after I've spoken to you. And I've started picking up things like that again that I let go a bit while, while, while life was so intense and the juggle was so intense. Started playing tennis again a few years ago you know started kind of almost like preparing myself for this for this time that so that I'm not feeling this you know because I can see Kenny's really 
And I, you know, I can see the look on his eyes when we're on our own in the house. He suddenly goes, oh, my gosh, this is it. This is our future. You know, suddenly this noisy house is quiet again. So I think that is also relevant, not just to people who want to change their careers, but also looking at that because it's that's, you know, something that you can't even imagine when you've all consuming kind of situation of a baby. But, but I've seen it with my mum. I've seen it with my mum. You know, my mum, uh, you know, I'm 37. My mum, every time I... I come home, all she wants to do is mother me again. All she wants is me there. You know, they never, and now having even had that a daughter, never you know, <laughs> never stop, it never stops. And even, like, even having a baby, like for some men, I think takes a while to bond with your, with your child. It's like an untalked about thing. Even with mothers sometimes, you know, like you have this traumatic birth, you're handed this baby, you're meant to have this epiphany moment. You know, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Um, and there's all this sort of guilt associated with the same thing with dads, you know, the, the older kid child gets, you know, when it gets two or three, they suddenly start getting that return of emotion and they're like, this is amazing. I was quite lucky because as soon as I saw her, her, her heartbeat on the first scan, I was like, I love you. And I, I feel it inside me. As soon as she came out, I was like, you know, cried like a baby. I was like, this is amazing. However, Did I you do under- skin to skin? I wasn't sure whether Kenny just wanted to take his top off in front of yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, no. Obstetrician or not. But- yeah, well, I, didn't, I turned up without a shirt on. So it's fine. <laughs> The thong, the thong was a bit much, but I don't. I think they were the, fine about that. The all-in-one wrestler. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely fine. But no, I, so I did the skin-to-skin stuff here because Chloe was being because uh, she had a C-section was was um was being stitched. So I had her for like an hour on me, changed her the change her first nappy or whatever, and I was like, you were in basically. I was in, and you have, yeah. you, but you can have that. But I just sort of realised now that you know you you put so much into these things, and then at some point they're going to grow and become individual, and then it's not going to be returned. And I can see now. It's making me reflect now on how I treat my parents and why they are the way they were and why you are parents are the way they are. You can see it already. She's only seven months. So I kind of quite cognizant of that. And I can understand your situation when they, when they, when they go. But it's interesting because the, the things you choke, you know, golf and tennis and stuff, again, there is a, there's something you can pursue to get better. So it gives you something. It's not just like idleness. It's like you go and play and you can get into your head of like, there's a path of improvement. And I genuinely believe that humans are here to consistently keep getting better and have purpose because your purpose has been an amazing mother. You obviously have your, your, your media career, which you've, you smashed. When one goes and you'll still never stop being a mother and looking after because they'll be like, you know, on the phone to you all the time because the real world, you know, a crap place and they always need it. They always need a mum. But you've now got a purpose in playing those sports. And I think also it's quite nice with um with uh, with the relationships going back to going, you know, let's make date nights for ourselves. Let's eat, eat like, because people think that relationships, the longer you've been together, it just happens. You never stop working at it. So it's like going, right, shall we go on a holiday together? Shall we go and do that thing we never said? Shall we go for a weekend break? Shall we go on a date night? Shall we go and all the stuff we said we were going to do, do it and actually literally sit down and write it down. Otherwise you never do it. Well, Kenny was very much on your page on that. When when we when Ruben Lois were really little, like two months, three months old, if I had some help in the house whether and they were asleep, he would literally be like, right, let's go for a coffee. And we, I, can't, I can't, but hang on, they're asleep. What are you going to do? Stand over and look at them while they're sleeping. And we'd just go to a little coffee shop at the end of our road for half an hour until I started getting a bit antsy and wanted to go back again. But he was always of the mind, this was his kind of mantra, they're here because we really loved each other. Or we love each other. Because yeah. <laughs> we really love each other. And the last thing that they would ever want in life is for us, you know, to lose that because of them, you know, because, but what I, what I think sometimes men kind of don't, necessarily always tap into is the mother thing is just very different isn't it and it's it's so um it's primal like it's it primal, is, it's primal yeah. and it's also that as you talked about guilt and pressure and all the other stuff that comes externally as well as the internal stuff i'm shocked by i i'll be honest with you i mean this is another podcast in itself but the the thing around uh, women having children is i've never seen so much uh, external pressure 
and, and, and fighting and competition between women in regards mm. to this opinion. particular so, opinion. And, 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 I, and you know, I think what gets lost a lot of the time is, is if a child's safe and born well, it doesn't matter how it came to this world or what you do, as long as you put them in the best position, because you don't get any medals. Like I said to Chloe, when she was on a sort of six weeks of not letting me get any help, and I said to her, listen, you do know that you're not, you're, you know, if you took two nights off, you'll be a better mum from the other side of it. And you struggling through this sleep regression, when she's 14, you're not, someone's not going to knock on the door and give you a golden plaque and say, do you know those, it's so important. It doesn't matter. You don't, you're not any worse, uh, lesser person. So I convinced her, lo and behold, two nights off, she was refreshed, kicked in, kicked in again. And so I just, I, I'm astounded. And I think if, if you could eradicate, I mean, honestly, if you could eradicate the pressure around childbirth and the perception, women would rule the world, genuinely. You, you know, because you're more intelligent, you're not as stupid as men, you live longer. I just, if you stop putting pressure on each other, that, I reckon you'd just take over and we'd, we'd be working for you. I think, I think the, um, that's the aim. Yeah. Um, I, I think that um, that was one of the things that really shocked me as well, James, because I, I really had to kind of cement in my mind the African proverb that it takes a village to raise a child. I knew if I was going to have my career, carry on with my career, that I was going to have to pay for help as well as try and ask for help because we lived in the South, our family were in the North and I had to get over that guilt of paying somebody, you know, at the end of the day, if they looked after my kids. And of course, it was a juggle with Kenny and I, but I think the quicker you can get to some kind of place, on that that you're happy with the better it is for everybody in the family because yeah. kids feel all emotions you know they're like horses aren't they you know they, yeah. well they're not like horses but I was just thinking I know about what you mean how, you know what I mean that, that sort of emotional transference yeah, you see they, it in they, a horse's eyes yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and they take that kind of like emotion on even though they can't express it at two and three years old so are you absolutely loving this this because like you know, I said earlier on when you were talking about suddenly feeling a bit more content about things Bodhi must have had a, a big part to play in that in terms of your purpose Yes, she she has, and uh, you know I, I'm 37, so I was quite late to, to having kids in relative terms. My friends, I'm the last one out of my my friendship group, and and there was two reasons I waited. I, I was, I think some people have kids to, to to fix a relationship. Sometimes some people have kids to fill a hole or or to find something. Like you said, if they've got a job and they've got a, uh, whatever, and they don't have a career or have passion, they they go well. This is what I'm going to do. You know, Chloe and I sat down. We're like, do you know what? If we are able to to, to have it, and I'm and I didn't realise that the amount of people who struggle with fertility, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I was I was mind blown about that. Um, so we were very lucky we had that option. And when we decided to do it, one of the biggest fears I had was I've just got my life under control. I'm about to bring something into this world that I exert absolutely no control over, and that I'm going to love more than anything. And I can see it now. Like it was at. Um, play party thing the other day and some little two-year-old girl was having a like a, a, a tantrum ran 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 straight into Bodhi hit her in that like hit her in the head she's obviously crying and I'm like just the feeling it made me feel I'm like oh my god like this is why I didn't have kids I don't want to spend my whole life worrying about something else you know if I mess up that's fine but to have this little thing you're like all you want to do is make sure they're safe and I catch myself checking on her at night and you know she's eating like she's just starting to um, go onto solids and I sit there the whole time watching it are you choking are you, and then so uh, it is amazing but it's very unsettling and I can now see why all the things my mum used to say to me and my dad used to say to me have come to fruition it's only seven months in and I think I'm going to be one of them like try to play it cool dads but I'm just not going to be because I, I kind of I'm a bit well you know like people sort of go through life with a, a certain level of naivety if you spend a lot of time reflecting on yourself and, and watching other people and hearing people's stories it sort of sinks in with me, bizarrely, you wouldn't think of it to look at me. So i kind of quite aware of, 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 you know, I've been around lads the whole time having children. And I sort of look at it now and you're like, oh my God, I, everything they all said is going to come true. 
I think it's great you've had a girl as well, you know, James, because you talked before about your some some men need to have daughters, yes, I feel. And I think you you were definitely one of those because of what you talked about before, that very masculine kind of environment you were brought up in, in terms of boarding schools and boys schools and then in a rugby environment. And yet you are somebody that I really, truly feel, even though you say, you know, things sarcastically sometimes or you have done in the past about Chloe and things about your relationship. You are somebody who is on a journey to if not become a renaissance man, to try and work out kind of, you know, how you can be a better bloke and, you know, and be a more more of an ally. I think you are an ally, but not not everybody, you know, in your generation is. Some are very confused. There is a, there is a kind of confusion around masculinity, I think, that I, we've addressed a couple of times on this podcast, actually, with Vernon Kay, which was really interesting. What, what's your take on it right now about where men are? Oh, society. I think, look, I think that, you know, the moment people like Andrew Tate and other guys are, are coming to the fore, there is a massively lost generation, I think, because, again, you know, you're, you're exactly right. I, I, you know, I obviously wanted a, a child to be healthy. That was the first protocol. And then all I wanted was a daughter. I didn't want a boy, uh, which is, you know, kind of the old cliche that, you know, there's my boy. And, and, and men get, sort of get very excited about it. And if you'd asked me when I was sort of 15 or I would have said, yeah, for a son. All I wanted was a little girl, I think because um, what I've learned from Chloe in regards to compassion and a different point of view and um, with her friendship and now expanding my friendship, having female friends and everything else, I kind of realised what a deficit I had and what a, you know, it, the thing it is, you can imagine why, you know, so many people are so funny about going to all, you know, when you go to an all uh, one same sex school, and then in my environment, you can understand why men are the way they are, and they objectify women, and they, you know, they do stupid things because the only exposure they ever get to them is at a school dance. It's like you know, or or, or you, you only ever see them as sex objects because you're just not able to communicate. I didn't go to university. I didn't see you know the only sort of uh, matriarch I had in my my life was 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 my mum. So. I think for me, um, I needed to understand that. And obviously, as I've got older, I've, I've, I've you know, understood the way I was and, and, and some of the things I, I uh, or the worldviews I had weren't correct. And so I've consistently tried to kind of to change that. And I've learned a lot about that. And I think for my daughter, I wanted a daughter because I think it would um, smooth out some of my sharper, sharper edges. I think there is an issue with being a man, you know, and I, I'm, I'm unapologetically a man. I imagine if you open the dictionary, there's probably a picture of me under toxic masculinity. Not, not because I... I act like a top, you know, like someone like that. I just think that being assertive, being a physical, chivalrous, kind of that, you know, that kind of person and, you know, being who I am, but also being a, an understanding of other people and, and, and being prepared to change, I think is what men should be. And I think we need strong people. I think we need people who are un, unashamedly who, who they are. And I think when Andrew Tate, as I said, comes into it, there are a lot of lost people, you know, and he's some of the stuff he says about kind of that being a strong individual. I agree with the stuff around our possession of women. It's, it's just, then that's when you lose people. All these stuff you lose them when it becomes anything about just worrying about yourself and being better yourself. You know, you don't start telling other people how they should be. And I think the one belief thing I, I have around that is that being a strong physical man with manners, politeness, prepared to look after. You know, not that women need looking after, but in my mind, if if I can be a protector and be a you know hunter gatherer and I can do whatever I want to do and it fits into an equal symbiotic relationship that's all I want to be you know I don't want to lose my identity I don't want to pretend that I I'm not strong-willed and, and a defender well, Chloe and I you know we split everything down the middle she is as you know I, I champion her as much as she champions me we don't have any of that stuff in our you know relationship we don't have any hang-ups in, in regards to that but I see you know I see sexism, sexism and misogyny everywhere you know when most people I go to an event 
uh, if I introduce someone, they just look at Chloe to see if she's fit or not, or, you know, or if she'll say an answer to a question, they'll pretend she didn't say it. And I'll go, my wife just said that. And I see it all the time. You know, I see it when women go into a workplace and you want to own your femininity, but you equally uh, don't want to be seen as too sexy and provocative, or, you know, you want to be assertive, but not bossy. I'd never have to think about that. I've never walked into a room and thought, you know, I want to look good, but, you know, I'm worried about people making me, th you know, think I'm going to be too provocative. And if I shout at someone, no one's ever gone, oh, you're a bossy, you know, you're a bossy bloke. So I see all that now. I see that all the time. And I think there's so much work to be done. And I think with men like me, you can be strong, you can be assertive, you can be unashamedly a man, but you can also, you know, be uh, cognizant of all this stuff. And there's obviously um, a lot of young men and men who are on your page. And that is a literal comparison because you've sold so many books that are, you know, you kind of ventured into these areas, haven't you, um, about that. And your last yeah. book, I believe, um, discusses that as well. And your tour, let's talk about your stand-up. You just, you mentioned it earlier on. What's the, the full title again? Sex Tries and Videotape. Sex Tries and Videotape. That was the headline when I when I made my England debut. Because of your, um, yes, yes. your, your suspension, <laughs> as you mentioned, from school. Yeah. Um, uh, when you look back at that, that person that was yeah. involved in that video um, incident, how do you kind of talk about that then without so on the tour, diminishing you know, I, that experience? No, I mean, so look, you know, the, the thing that it was, what, the story that was written in, in, in the papers and the, you know, the, tr the truth of it was I, get, I lent someone a video camera. That's, well, that's what I did. I wasn't, you know, but obviously the, the story kind of escalated and, you know, the person now just wouldn't have entertained that because you understand the kind of, just how wrong that was to do that and to put people into that situation. You see it all the time now with, with mobile phones and people passing messages around and videos around. And I look at it and go, I just wasn't aware. You know, I've always been very selfish, right? And on my own path, and I would do whatever it takes to be successful and um, and to, to work on myself and be better, to, to my detriment sometimes. But I think that that kid back then was just so naive. He was just living life with no thought to anything else other than uh, serving his emotions and not really aware of anything and just had no work, no work experience, didn't really understand how things worked. And so I, I've come, I've come a long way from that person, you know, obviously, it's something that I more often not things like that you would address with humor, you know, on the tour, you sort of, you know, you're aware of it, like if you were to ask me in a cold light day, I tell you, I was an idiot, I was, it was you know, it was awful and, and Neanderthal, you know, you just wouldn't, it was unacceptable. But, you know, you, uh, after a while, you've got to just look at it and go, a joke, go, listen, I know this was stupid, but this, you know, and laugh at yourself and point fingers at yourself and make out kind of just what a sort of lost person you were, really. Um, and that's what I do with a lot of things. You know, the tour is uh, a reflection of my career, but it's meant to be entertaining. You know, there's plenty of opportunities and people with better careers to kind of tell those in-depth stories. You know, the, the last book I wrote, Approach Without Caution, was much more serious than anything I've written. You know, what we're talking about today is more serious. But when you're coming on a night out, you know, my 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 purpose is always to make people laugh. So the tour is kind of a way of of, of tracking my t time in Stade Francais with naked calendars and, you know, trying to throw England coaches Oh, off. you just put that image in my head. Yeah, sorry, um. sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, white water rafting, you know, uh, throwing coaches off, off off boats and kind of the terrible World Cups, you know, all my, my yeah, World yeah. Cup sagas were awful. So just all the kind of bits and pieces around it, but done in a, in a funny, what's it like? Who, who are your Judy? audience? When you look out, what do they look like? Well, do you know what the best bit about the audience is? Is that there's obviously some people who follow me on social media, but there's obviously some elderly couples who, who whose wives have bought their husbands a ticket thinking that it's James Haskell. They're going to talk about, you know, in-depth scrum laws and concussion problems. And after the first story about, you know, the incident at school and, and then setting up a poor mag business off the, you know, that you can see them going, uh, 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 so they, but, but every time I come out for a second half, 
they're always still there. So you oh, know, that, I, that's, they're still yeah. hoping that you're going to get into those scrum laws. That's why. Yeah, I know. I did, but I do <laughs> it say must that. Must be the second half. <laughs> I do say that. I come out and I'm, I'm so sorry. You thought we were going to talk about whether Eddie Jones is the right man for the job and whether there's a concussion problem and how to look after players. I'm so sorry, but listen, there's no refund, so just sit down and relax. I mean, you know, we talk about kind of you know again having a having a baby, you know, and kind of the the, the bits and pieces around that, and just you know when you have a baby, no one ever tells you just about how much gas they make, and you're like. You know, this is just the most awful thing. I go to kiss my little daughter and she smells like a cabbage and you're like, you know, and all the bits off the back of it, you know, I don't know whether it's a changer or a fracker, you know. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's, it's an explosive, these explosive poos that are that's just always, the ones that come out, out of the nappies, no matter oh, how yeah. tight you put it on. I think that, that is... Uh, Chloe, yeah, but that... Chloe's very laissez-faire about putting it, so I'm kind of like, it's for me, it's like a surgical operation. I change her, manage everything... And then I put the next nappy in and sort it out. Chloe's there dawdling, dawdling. And then, you know, and sort of quite casual. And I'm like watching it going, you know this, that you pulled the pin out of a grenade. This is going to go off any minute. <laughs> I never forget the first time she did it. Bodie passed with just crapped on the wall. And I'm like, <laughs> Chloe, I literally, why are you just, just get her out, get her in and sort it out again? Uh, when when mine were two, we used to love Saturdays. If I wasn't working, twelve o'clock, they went down for their naps, and we'd have we'd have done that classic thing on a Friday night where you go, should we go to bed early or because it's a Friday, should we go out? Oh, we'll go out, and then we'd be desperate for our lunchtime nap at the same time as them. Got into bed quickly, pull the covers up, ready for a two hour nap, and then Ruben was still talking to himself. I don't know, I asked, what's going on? And then he was talking a bit more. He had done a dirty protest all over the cot, the walls. I, I, I froze. Kenny's brilliant in a crisis. That to me is a crisis. And he just gave me Reuben and said, you clean him, I'll clean the room. It was hideous. Really? It was, yeah. I mean, it was just, he'd obviously pulled the nappy off and just gone for it and just I put just, it everywhere. You can never get it out of your nose. It took days. You know, that's... I know. <laughs> I know. It's, it's but also because I, you know, Chloe jokes about this. I, I, um, I think I picked that from my, my mother. I've got a really, really acute sense of smell. Like I can sit, like I, when we got the dog once, I walked into the house, opened the front door and I was like this doesn't, this isn't right. And she's like, what do you mean? I can't smell anything. And I and I was like, you seem like, like I'm like a bloodhound upstairs, but in a spare bedroom, the dog had crapped behind the curtain. I'm like, oh my she goes, God. how do you smell like that? I just don't know. So with Bodie, I walk straight into the room and I'm like, right, she's done something here. She goes, I don't think she has. She absolutely has. So it's just one thing parents, they just don't warn you about that. They talk no. more about kind of, you know everything else you just don't talk about the fact that bodily fluids you just have to become so au fait with them I remember like first time feeding her at a table because she's learning to chew things and just projectile vomiting and I <laughs> and I and I just panicked I was like Chloe I was like look what you've done Chloe I didn't do anything I was like why did you tell me to feed her out at a restaurant when this has happened like I'm not doing it again we're not gonna in a small contained plastic like like Dexter's laboratory with all like plastic or Dexter the TV series all plastic sheeting she's on her own in no clothes at all in a bib I'm gonna put like a carrot on the end of a pole Now, James, at this point in the Midpoint podcast, we normally bring on an expert, 
But we decided today that you are fast turning into the expert of lots of different things. So the midpoint listeners sending questions and things they're interested in all the time, we've collated some that we think you will be particularly good at answering. Is that okay if we can put you kind of in that? I've always wanted to be an agony aunt, so you've literally played into a passion of mine, so we're fine. Okay, this could be the next book. Um, I'm just going to grab my glasses to make sure I read these correctly because I don't want to get people's... um, This is something that comes to you later in life, James, as well. look at them Um, glasses! Lovely, (laughs) Cathy! Lovely! (laughs) Okay. Um, This is from I.C. White. This is is really kind of tapping into one of your expert areas. What's the best way to gain muscle but lose weight for an older person? Is this something that you're you're finding is a different, you know, for you personally now as you're heading towards your late thirties? <laughs> no, is, yeah, because I'm young, I'm young and sprightly. This is absolutely not and, an issue. And in denial, um, yeah. <laughs> is it something you're noticing yourself that you're kind of changing in your training? Yeah, my body shape has changed actually. I mean, look, there's a, there's enough sort of fat white middle class rugby players out in the world that we don't need another one. So I'm having to I'm having to monitor it. Just in, I know just in terms of my body shapes uh, uh, is slowly changing. I think again trying to nail that routine and train is is um is hard for me. But listen to answer the question, actually, you know what, I think um as you as you progress, if you depending on if you're a male or a female, so women obviously have uh, you know one tenth less testosterone than men. So gaining muscle is uh, going to take a, a lot of work. You know, there isn't, there's a belief that sort of women will go into the gym, lift, you know, two sessions and come out like the Hulk. If you see women who look like the Hulk, they have deliberately done that and it's taken them years to achieve that. So don't ever have any fear about uh, lifting weights. To gain muscle as a man, it is easier. But again, all I would recommend doing is worrying about lifting weights uh, over anything. You know, my wife, you know, she trains 800 uh, women online every eight weeks and, and men online. And, you know, the old belief is sort of doing cardio to, to lose weight um, and do weights every night. Forget it. Just lift weights three or four times a week. And obviously, you know, if you're going to try to gain muscle, you need to up your up your calories. And through lifting that weight, you will burn the muscle because you'll end up carrying more mass around. So I would recommend doing three or four weight sessions a week. Try and get your 10,000 steps in a day. And ultimately, you will you will build up muscle, and it's and it isn't actually that hard to do, depending on whatever age. You the know, ten thousand steps a day, I think, is um, when in lockdown Kenny was doing at least that and lost kilos doing that, and then of course the muscle that he did have and that he was working on looked bigger and better. Yeah, he'd got because rid of also the, the thing with it is, if you if you what people forget is that because people think you should do cardio, right? You'll you'll burn more. You'll burn more fat and more calories walking around and gesticulating like I am than you'll ever will in the gym. Maybe your best day, 700, 1,000 calories. But if you're walking around doing 10,000 calories, that's where you'll burn your, 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 your sort of fat. If you go into the gym and lift weights, not only will you be burning calories, but you'll also be increasing muscle mass, which then increases your, your, your rate of metabolism. You'll be carrying more weight around, thus you burn more calories. So that for me, for me it's, the, it's the best way of doing it. It's the it. win-win. Yeah, and there's loads and of gym programs as well. Also for women, as because I say, I don't know whether I see as a man or a woman, for women, it's so important as well for bone density as we're getting towards um, those hormonal changes. For os- very, yeah, very for important. osteoporosis, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, ma- it's proven time and time again. And again, fighting off disease. Mm-hmm. The people who have a, ca- a ca- look, cancer's a one in two situation, you know, now, people who train and have muscle mass are much more likely to fight off a diseased body uh, and beat, beat things like cancer than anything else. So if you're lifting weights, you cannot go wrong with putting on muscle mass. You cannot go wrong with, and as I said, find a program three or four times a week if you can, and just get your ten thousand steps in. Everything else will take care of itself. Excellent, uh, Diane Higgs. 
says, I'd love to know your thoughts on how best to handle injuries in midlife and how to get back into exercise. Um, how is your body after rugby? And which, have you got bits you have to protect? Have you, yeah, my, yeah, my body is not good. Um, I might look a five out of 10 with my shirt off, but internally I'm about a two out of 10. I think, you know, I've got arthritis in my ankle. I've got a problem with my wrist. I've got, uh, I had spinal surgery um, about a year ago now to, with a disc that's crushing my spinal cord. So I've got problems all over the place. More often than not, when you're injured, you think rest is, is a good thing. Now, unless you've been told by a doctor or a physio to rest and you're going to aggravate it, uh, the, the best thing you can do is get up and move and obviously understand that you know if you have a shoulder injury and you're not permitted to do too much, you can still do lower body work. You can still... Um, you know, uh, keep keep yourself moving. I would, if you've got injuries, get a physio, get a rehab plan and actually go and do it, which is the first port call because I'm not qualified to, to give you advice on particular injuries. But I would say, you know, think focusing on things like mobility, lifting weights and also modifying your stuff. So I can't run anymore. I haven't run since I retired, but I still do conditioning on things like Versa Climber, Ski Erg, Rowing Machine. There are different ways to skin a cat. Don't just sit back at, at, at home and rest because if you have an injury, so for example, I hurt my shoulder, I have muscle mass on my shoulder, which keeps most of the stuff in place. If I don't train, the muscle mass diminishes and the, the bits that were sore are now more sore because they're not being protected. So if you imagine you've got any sort of injury, you need to keep at work in that area, keep muscle mass on to keep supporting that. If you've got arthritis, you know, things like that, there are ways and means um, around that and actually keeping moving mm. will make a profound difference. The moment you stop, you're stuffed. Absolutely. And it's how to get back into exercise, uh, Diana, as well. I would say that, you know, you talk about walking, start off with something that is attainable. You know, don't say I'm going to run half marathon every day of the week. You've got to start off with something that you can stick to because it's all about habit forming, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. I mean, also, look, I'd go, if you've got concerns, as I said, about injury, get some medical advice, you know, because you're investing in yourself. I think, you know, when people look at what they spend on a night out mm. or spend on, or on frivolous things, mm. you know, go to a physio and get get an idea of your body, get an MOT. And then, like you said, you know, I, I know people who go, you know, who you see it, New Year, New You. They buy a pair of running shoes and they go running for an hour. Their body absolutely hurts. They hate it. It's boring. You know, you don't have to run to get in shape. You can just, as Gabby said, walking the dog, riding a bicycle, going to the gym, playing squash, whatever it is will help you. But, you know, things like make sure you're right, right, wearing the right footwear, make sure you've warmed up. Don't try and do any, put your ego in, in, in on hold before you do any of these things. And can I just say the word Pilates as well for, I mean, it is just um, I have three years of doing it as well as still doing weights, but it's just incredible. My I need body, to do that. You know, do because mimics, yeah. my body has not hurt for three three years. You know, it's like it's literally it's amazing. Um, and Mark says a lot of men I know in their forties are struggling mentally. Any advice how exercise might help? Okay, look, you know I am always astounded that um, the, the the people talk about mental health all the time right now, and it's become part of the zeitgeist. As you said, it's become part of what everybody's talking about. What people are forgetting with mental health is it requires work and it requires expert advice. Um, and you know, if you have anxiety, depression, or any sort of uh, mental uh, condition, it's never going to go away. What you're going to understand is it's management and how quickly you get back on track. So say, for example, I have depression. If I have a bout of depression, it could last me months, could last me a year, whatever. If you have a, a, a moment and you've, you put tools in place to work on it, it might take you an hour to get back out of that mood and get back onto your to your to your path because you're working on it. So firstly, exercise is is highly recommended to deal with mental health. But I would put exercise to one side. I would go and speak to someone and address it because 
you know, I said earlier on this podcast that when I, I saw psychologists when I was 17, I would say from 17 to 35, I saw someone consistently almost every week or every couple of weeks. If I put my ask everyone else in that team, how many people were looking after their mental health? I would say for the first part of it, 10 years, there would have been nobody. Nobody. Maybe one. Even now, with groups of men, people are still not doing it. They're talking about their problems. So, you, 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 you know, this guy said, I've got an issue. What are you doing to fix it? Because it's the same thing with an injury. Uh, you know, if you need surgery, you can't just will your leg back together. You have to get an expert on there. Because if you knew how to do it, you'd already have fixed it. So for any men, you know, because it's the biggest killer of men under 40, male suicide. There are men out there struggling. Go and find someone. It might not be the first person you see. It might not be the second person you see. But go and find them and get tools just from them to work on yourself. And just as you would by different trainers to do for do different jobs you need to see people to get the tools to make yourself better and like the weirdest thing is if i told all the people listening to this podcast i could change your body by um taking a magic pill you bite my hand off if i told you, you could change everything about yourself how you slept how you dealt with your relationship how you dealt with your work how you felt day to day what a good person you were how positive you were how successful you could be by speaking to an expert and addressing the things going on in your head I would say over half of you would just ignore me and not do it. And that, for me, is a sad indictment the way we are. And also, it's, it's very hard work. You have to revisit it every day. Like I'm sure there's lots of people in the corporate world who listen to this podcast who remember those team-building exercises or the start of a new corporate year. Someone comes in and writes success on the whiteboard and they go, right, we're going to do this. And everyone feels empowered and then you never revisit it again. E excellence and being better around your mental health is something you have to do every single day it's boring it's tiring and sometimes you feel like it makes no traction but it will change it and the people who manage their mind are, are, are transformed but there are so many people out there doing absolutely nothing but about like it like everything it all that's habit forming isn't it so you will get to a point where you do it without thinking because you know it makes you feel good in the same way that you know whether it's a habit you have every morning is making your bed because you feel like you've completed something whatever that thing is you know it becomes a habit so even though it's boring and even though it feels like it's effort eventually it's you can't not do it can you do you know what, one of the interesting things is, is, and again, a lot of people, when I, I talk about stuff online, always attribute it to um, you know, putting money, uh, food on the table, money in the bank. is one of the biggest stresses that men in particular have. I mean, women have it as well, but this mm. is what men come back to me and say. Mm. Or men think, or people think, that their problem is so unique. Everyone says, oh, you, you, know, you wouldn't understand. It's different from me. Listen, there's 8 billion people out of the world. There is not... There are some pretty consistent problems. Just because you think your situation is unique, I guarantee you there'll be someone out there feeling exactly the same way as you are and that you're not as unique as you think you are and that you're, there is help for you out there. You know, you're not so different that you can't, you know, go and get some help. And not I to want for, to minimize your problems, but, but yeah, you're not in an exclusive group. No, there, no, because no. everyone says I, I would change it, but I can't because you wouldn't understand because it's different from me. And actually, when you break things down, there are traits through absolutely every issue and every problem. And every and just as you read a billionaire's book on how they're successful, you'll see the same traits. Dedication, focus, feedback, seeing the right people, a bit of luck, whatever it is. Mental health is the same thing. You know, There are different continuous traits through there that you might not see are very similar to everything else. And as you said, Gavin, not to diminish it, but actually there are ways through all of this. You just need to get help. And not be frightened of it because, as I said, just as you get a car, a mechanic to look at your car, why would you not get someone to look at your look mm. at your brain and address it and get some tools to fix your life? We're really um, we're really bad, I think, as well at, at almost it's admitting that you spend money on your health. You know, I found myself when I when I kind of realised I did a podcast, Mariella Froster, when I realised that some of the symptoms she was talking about with the menopause, I thought, oh my god, I, perimenopause is the thing that happens years before, and I was like, this feels like things that you know, it was more mood things. 
and I paid to go see a female health specialist. And I've, I felt embarrassed almost admitting that I'd paid for it because I felt like I was then saying that you have to do that because, of course, people want to be able to go to their GP and get everything fixed. And I thought for what I paid for that, people go out for dinner, you know, and actually that that's something that I felt important spending money on, you know, which which I shouldn't be shy about saying. At the end of the day, you know, anything you do, spending money on yourself, getting care for your children, you know, is, is completely up to you. And, and you know, you're, you can only worry about yourself and you can only contextually talk about yourself. You know, and I, I find Chloe doing it all the time now, just saying, well, look, you know, I'm talking about this specific person. We're not talking about this dietary requirement or this allergy. Look, at the end of the day, we're talking about, you know, for the most part, this band of, a band of people. And I think the reason I had a long career as I did was I spent money that I earned on my back on myself. I went and saw different doctors, different nutritionists, different physios. I did weird and wonderful sprint coaches and, you know, tr reverse treadmill running to get better. And I, and I took different supplements. There's absolutely no problem with investing in yourself and admitting, you, you know, spending, you know, you spend money on yourself. You know, if you can afford it, do it. If you can't, I'm sorry you can't, but we can't, you can't caveat everything, you know. And without your health, you could do nothing. One more problem and then I'll let you go. Emma from The Beach says, is it scary to start a completely new career later in life? And what tips do you have for someone who's thinking about making a complete career change? Now, she's asked that question not knowing it was you that's going to be answering the question, by the way. So what do you say to Emma? It is always scary change. You know, humans do not like change. We, we pride ourselves on comfort and security. Um, I think that... For me in particular, I was lucky because I learnt, learnt a certain set of tools being a sportsman that you can attribute to anything else, which, um, you know, as I said, it would be things like um, f feedback, self-review, um, kind of self-awareness. You know, there's already always somebody doing what you want to do better than you and having the confidence to reach out to them and ask them for advice um, and, and also the planning and a clear sort of roadmap of where you're going. I think before you make a change, more often than not, it's better just to take five minutes on your own and sit down and just review, going, why Why am I making this change? You know, what does it look like? Um, you know, is it possible for me to do this? Because I think some people, if you can say it's possible for me to do it, that's half the uh, half the uh, the battle. You might not know how you're going to do it, but it's possible. Like, there's no point in me saying I'm going to be an astronaut. It's impossible. Adidas, Adidas says impossible is nothing. No, impossible is impossible, right? Uh, is it me okay to say I'm going to win the Tour de France? It's not. Right? Is it possible? Was it possible when I retired for me to become a DJ? Yes, it was possible. Did I know how to do it? No. So then you work back from that and go, right, what are the things that I can control to make becoming a DJ happen? Well, I can learn to DJ. I can go on a course. I can reach out to other DJs. I could start a radio show. I could start recording my music. I could start looking after my mental health around, you know, the highs and lows of when I have good moments and bad moments. And then suddenly, after managing those things, you are ahead, further ahead today than you were yesterday and before you know it you will have transitioned but don't rush into change just because you think you've got a miracle idea like you see it all the time with Dragon's Den that people come in with this life-changing uh, solution to a problem that didn't exist and then they've given up their whole life for it and it's like you need to speak to people and sit down and go I want to do this this is how I'm going to do it what do you think and find somebody in that field and speak to them and say look I'm thinking about doing this you know because people want to help people more often than not and also like you know like I said it, it's going to take take a bit of time but anything is possible 100%. 
James, um, I'm sure that uh, having answered just four of the uh, midpointers' uh, questions and problems, they would love you to answer more. But um, I think our time sadly is done. You've probably got to go off and do 100 things today. And I'm actually going to Salford and... today. Are unbelievably, you? Are you doing a to TV do sexualised videotapes? Yeah. Oh, you're actually on in the Salford Theatre. Are you there? Yes, I think so. Ah. Yeah, I'm not even sure. I just sort of get, get in a nondescript car. It's not even a luxury car. I've complained about that, as you would imagine. And I just turn up to Salford <laughs> and I get out. I get out and I shout at some people, make people laugh, offend a few people I get back in the car and leave oh well enjoy and I'm sure Thank they'll you. enjoy you and good luck continuing your, your parenting journey love to Chloe who's doing brilliantly in her own uh, coaching role isn't she and yeah, um, she's smashing it yeah we'll see you soon take care thanks for coming on Midpoint thank you Well, I really enjoyed our chat with James. His point about embracing your passions outside of work and family is something I think is super relevant to us midlifers. Like James said, on a cold, dark day, what do you have to turn to? And it is never too late, never too late to address that. He's obviously done a lot of reflection and work on himself. And by his own admission, he's still constantly learning. But it was interesting to hear his thoughts on masculinity and how he moves through life with a lot more awareness now. It was great fun putting your questions to James. And if you've got any more, do join the Facebook group, The Midpointers, or message me directly on Instagram at Gabby Logan. And if you're enjoying the changes we've made so far this series, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd love to read your feedback. Thanks to Spiritland Productions for putting The Midpoint together and to you as well for listening. I'll catch you next time.